2: You're listening to Kickin' the Kariaki, hosted by a resident intersexual feminist, Sid and Elena. And do we have news for
3: you, team of listeners. The month of May is our one year of podcasting, and we will be marking the growth of this little podcasting. We're celebrating with our first ever live recording, and we'd love for you to be in the audience. Watch our social media channels for more information. All our former guests are invited, and so are you. So if you have a favourite guest, or you just want to hang out with us, watch this space. Last month we talked trans identities with Bex, Romario and Sabah and we've heard great things from you all.
2: This month we're talking fashion, clothing and garments but we're not talking about dressing for your body shape. We're looking at clothing as intersexual feminists so for example, have you ever thought about who makes your clothes? Was the design created or stolen? And how can an item of clothing symbolise modesty and so much more? Let's delve into this complex topic with three formidable guests.
4: I'm Sophie, I'm British-Chinese, I'm cis, I'm non-disabled, and I'm straight. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast this
2: month. This is a topic that we've been really interested in doing for a while, actually, kind of the cultural appropriation side of fashion. So could you maybe give us a little bit of a rundown on what is cultural appropriation?
4: Cultural appropriation is basically when another culture adopts or uses elements of a different culture and it tends to be white people adopting other cultures probably just because as someone from a minority you kind of know how offensive it is to have parts of your culture appropriated so you wouldn't tend to do it to other people but it is very much a problem in kind of western communities adopting other elements
3: I guess that leads us to the question of which cultures are the victims, if we could say that.
4: Well, it tends to be the ones that are considered kind of exotic or trendy. So it tends to be Native American culture. A lot of black culture is appropriated, whether it's appearance wise, like the hair or whether it's African tribes that are just kind of generalised. And you also get a lot of mainly Southeast Asian cultures. So it tends to be, you know, saris or like bindis, that kind of thing.
2: Do you know anything about the history of companies monetizing, for example, off of tribal fashion in inverted commas?
4: I think the main background behind that is because tribal fashion is easily marketed as like festival fashion. So Coachella's actually banned headdresses now. So that's a good step forward. Wow. Um, That's actually quite a big thing. Yeah, I think just to be honest, it's just a lot of bad publicity. If people, if when you type in Coachella and the things that come up are like, oh, so and so wore a headdress, like this celebrity bought this kind of Native American pattern, etc. So to kind of ban it, it focuses a lot more on the positives. So it is it is like a good PR decision. I'd say the main company who Still seems to struggle with the idea of Native American clothing not being an accessory, is urban outfitters. I feel like it was last year that they still released like a whole line of clothing that was like feathered ear cuffs and feathered flags and like they had rip-off headdresses that they called crowns. It got even more ridiculous because they were selling like $20 satchels that they called like medicine pouches and then they even had like rain sticks and I'm like, why would Whoa. you bring a rain stick to a festival? Like it's just so offensive. Why is it offensive? You have to look into the history of it and you've got to see that Especially for Native Americans, like, white people came in, stole their land, like, massacred them. started, like, mass genocides. And now, like, the actual sacred parts of their culture, they're just, like, taking them away from them as well. So it kind of feels like your identity is nothing but an accessory, almost.
3: What's interesting is that Coachella, because of the publicity, banned Mm -hmm. headdresses. Yet urban outfitters, which is, who are basically selling clothing to make money, the demand... Or the pressure on them clearly doesn't exist because they're they're still putting out those kinds of clothing. Um, I think
4: at the end of the day, the problem is that there are always people who will buy them and don't really think about the cultural implications. Urban Outfitters knows what they're doing because there was actually a tribe, I think it was the Navajo Nation, who sued Urban Outfitters last year because they straight up just stole patterns and like trademarks because I may be wrong but I think that in terms of like headdresses there are specific colours and feathers that are associated with each tribe and I think what happened was that Urban Outfitters just copied some from the Navajo Nation so they sued them but then the Native American tribe lost the lawsuit because their trademark wasn't famous enough and they were told that you're not famous enough for this to just belong to you so you can't actually sue this multi-million dollar company for it which is utterly ridiculous because they're actually the most populous tribe of Native Americans in the States. If their trademark isn't famous enough, the smaller tribes have no chance in hell of kind of reclaiming theirs. It just sounds like a
3: complete power imbalance that the well-known organisation can appropriate from, I guess, the smaller tribes.
4: You always get that. You know how like Kylie Jenner stole, uh, she stole that image of dripping lips from an independent designer. And there was like a massive lawsuit about that because you always get big brands stealing from smaller independent companies. But it's just so much more personal and hurtful when it's a culture that's being stolen from.
2: Right. So I guess it it comes down to that idea that particularly white people, white history, British Empire, you did so much to ravage these nations and take everything of their history yeah. away from them. And then suddenly, oh, look, it's cool to like be a part of that culture and cool to be part of that nation.
3: Does colonialism play a role in cultural appropriation?
4: I think, honestly, it does, because you've got to look at what colonialism has meant for the aftermath so in terms of taking all these parts of their culture but right at the beginning you forced them to align with how you presented yourself so historically you've taken away all their identity but now it's okay for you to use it it's always this double standard of things are cool for white people, but when it belongs to the person themselves, it's too ethnic or too inappropriate. Almost. So like you see that with hair. So for black women, a lot of the time they have to straighten their hair because afros aren't considered presentable in a workplace or dreadlocks are considered dirty or whatever. But like the second Kylie Jenner wears it or like Justin Bieber, it's suddenly cool. It's just an issue of privilege because white people are choosing when they supposedly love a culture. They can just take elements from it and adopt it as their own when historically you've not allowed the people it belongs to to actually express themselves with those elements.
2: Right. So then what about this argument of freedom of expression? I'm a white person and I'm inspired by somebody wearing dreadlocks and I want to wear those things and it's my right as a person in the 21st century to do that.
4: I think the issue with that argument is that so often it's white people or people of privilege don't like their feelings getting hurt and they're kind of like oh it's all free speech I can do what I want but they don't really think about the implications on marginalized people and the kind of justice that marginalized people are searching for and at the end of the day like if you're a designer and you're inspired by certain Native American emblems or symbols or you see your friend with dreadlocks and you think they're really cool there are ways to appreciate things without just straight up stealing and straight up appropriating. So like there are ways that you can include colors or shapes into your designs without just copying a headdress and I think in terms of dreadlocks that's always a bit hard because I think hair is always such a tricky one because a lot of people are like oh it's just an accessory or whatever but I think at the end of the day when it comes down to it for black people their hair isn't an accessory like you can take out the knots you can straighten your hair and it will go back to normal but they have to have dreadlocks because otherwise you know hair's unmanageable or like they have to have it in an afro because constantly chemically straightening it is just really damaging and I think when you have the option to just remove it and they don't that's when there's an issue
3: so the ability to choose when you adopt a culture and then conveniently dispose of it essentially when it's no longer relevant so for example the clothing that people want to use for festivals is not what they want to use for the workplace and it's their privilege to kind of choose when they use that
4: yeah exactly
3: you talked about justice for marginalized people just then and marginalized cultures especially what might that justice look like
4: Honestly, it's just a level of thoughtfulness for people to feel like their culture is not being erased by white people. A lot of the time you can see when someone's appreciating it and it's just slightly misguided, but it's the kind of desire on their part to want to understand. It's interesting to
3: think about like who is designing these clothes and who are they talking to? Are they talking to the cultures that have inspired them?
4: I think if Urban Outfitters had ever consulted a Native American, they would know which aspects are okay to sell and what elements are sacred to a culture. And I think if you're not consulting someone of that heritage, you're kind of taking all the economic profit of it without giving any back to that community. Chanel, I think in like 2013 or 14, did a collection including massive white headdresses. And as soon as you've got the name Chanel attached to that, it becomes more expensive. Whereas would you go to a Native American tribe and buy things directly from them? Like, I don't think you would. Right, and you
2: kind of touched on a few things there. This idea of you can appreciate a culture without appropriating it. How can we do that?
4: The biggest example I can think of is cultural exchange let's say a white man marrying into an Indian family and let's say they want a massive traditional Indian wedding no one's gonna complain if he's wearing traditional Indian clothing because it's respectful in that case or you know if you go on holiday let's say I'm in China and I want a capo, and you go to a traditional K shop people from that culture designing from that culture and there's nothing offensive about it and they're genuinely profiting from it then there's nothing nothing wrong with that that's what's important it's got to be something that they want to share with you
3: and the key there sounds to me like who gets the money who gets the reimbursement for the time and the yeah. effort and the resources and
4: it's not necessarily even about money it's about just recognition when you think about even rap Why does Iggy Azalea earn so much more money than an authentic black female rapper? I don't know how closely you guys follow the Met Gala. So in 2015, they did this theme that was super questionable anyway, which was China through the looking glass. (laughs) And literally out of all the celebrities who attended, maybe Rihanna was the only prominent one who genuinely sought out a Chinese designer and then like her dress was completely ripped apart and people thought it looked like a fried egg. But she was the only one who actually had her head and her heart in the right place and was looking for someone from that culture so that she didn't turn up with chopsticks stuck in her hair.
3: So how do we know if something has been appropriated? If I'm walking around and I go into the shops, what questions should I be asking myself as a white woman
4: if ever you're even questioning it that is a sign that it's been appropriated But really the main thing is you've got to ask yourself if the item has cultural significance in the original culture and if however it's being presented now means that that significance has been stripped away. That's the main thing because it tends to be religious elements. A lot of Hindu gods are used as bedspreads or like people get them as tattoos and that's obviously really offensive. So how significant is it in that culture and would anyone in that culture use that item or show present that? item like this. And if they wouldn't, maybe you shouldn't be doing that either. What
3: about jewellery? Okay, so I'm from Brighton and there are a couple of shops and there is one stall that sells Afghan necklaces, which are very beautiful. And there is another shop that sells things from India. And there I bought some earrings from there. And I have been having dilemmas. I probably should have gone in and asked where they were from and who made them and how much of the money I pay the shop owner who is white or whoever's behind the till and how much of that goes back to the person that's what I should have done isn't it
4: I think in that case it might be less about appropriation and more just that you should be paying the people who deserve it I think the main jewelry items the South Asian accessories that are constantly appropriated like the bindi there's the one like that thing that you put in the part of your hair and it kind of slightly dangles over your forehead that's like a specific piece of jewellery that you wear differently depending on which part of India you're from. And I think only engaged or married Indian women wear it. And then, you know, there's nose rings that are specific to Indian women. And anklets and there are all these different things I think honestly like if you think any of your jewellery has significance to it you should research it and see.
2: Yeah I'm going to do my research I think that's kind of what we want to get across with an episode like this and on cultural appropriation is that it's okay to appreciate cultures and that it's okay to maybe like draw inspiration from it and we live in such a connected world now that it's hard not to be immersed and appreciate other cultures and be influenced by other cultures but to do your research into what these symbols mean ask the
4: question i also think there's a lot of cases where you see white designers doing something but you know that there's someone from that culture doing the exact same thing if not better for native american clothing specifically there's this woman called Bee yellowtail who designs like genuine native american inspired pieces and all her models her photographers her videographers her directors and producers are all people from indigenous tribes you can see from her clothing that she's inspired by nature and inspired by indigenous florals but you wouldn't ever see headdress feathers in it and that's when you know when someone from that culture is designing the clothing you know what can be used as inspiration and what can't I read about that in your your Galdem article. So what were some of the ways that you can make
2: sure that what you're doing isn't offensive?
4: Firstly, just always find someone from that culture and consult with them. They're going to tell you what prints are sacred and what prints are just pretty and what parts of their culture can be made more mainstream and what can't and then you know that it's never just turning into costume because i think that's when it's most offensive when you treat someone's culture like it's a costume that you can just put on and take off on a whim and like it's important to tell kids that you can't just paint your face a different color for halloween if you take it into the real world people think about it more because so often people don't take fashion seriously and fashion has deep repercussions the kids will see an editorial and be like well if they're allowed to edit their skin to be darker and wear dreadlocks why can't i just wear dreadlocks it really does stem from education Halloween
3: costumes, what a topic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're just wrapping up with a few final questions. So the first one is bearing in mind cultural appropriation in fashion and everything we've talked about, about stealing and privilege and asking questions and what can we do as allies?
4: I think if you see any designers particularly appropriating, don't give them any more support. Just don't buy anything from them. Tell your friends about them. Explain to people why it's wrong to do certain things. And just don't buy into festival fashion ever. And there's a lot of room decor things that you just don't buy into. Like Even things like dream catchers are technically cultural appropriation. Just be aware of what is and isn't appropriation and just buy things accordingly or consult people accordingly is what I would say.
3: Wonderful. Thank you so so much for coming onto the podcast and talking about cultural appropriation and fashion. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to come and be a part of this little podcast and sharing I've platforms. A great time. Oh, thank you. We have one final question, and that is just about how listeners can support your work, find
4: out more about you, maybe the articles you've written. Yeah, so I'm mainly, I want to say a journalist, but really just a blogger. So all my stuff will actually be listed on my blog, which is thereformedflake.com, under freelance work, I think is the tab I've got. And I write for a couple of uni publications, but I mainly cover fashion week and I also write for Galdem so I tend to do more racial pieces on Galdem so I did one on cultural appropriation which is how you guys found me but I also did one on fetishizing Asian women and just how generally grim it is to date as an Asian girl I don't have Twitter but I'm fairly active on Instagram which is okay it sounds really weird but it's Lena Anus which is L-E-N-A-A-N-U-S but it actually means brothel hag in Latin which I don't think is any better but like i used to be a major latin geek yeah so that that's where you can find me if you're not creepy i will answer your dm so <laughs> amazing that was sophie
2: talking about cultural appropriation and appreciation in fashion knowing there are native american designers we could support instead of buying festival attire is important let's talk to dominique about the ethics and clothing
0: my name is Dominique Muller. I'm white, middle class, European, and I work for a small organization, it's a cooperative, called Labour Behind the Label, and we work on human and labour rights in the garment industry.
3: Dominique, (laughs) tell us about Labour Behind the Label and how that works. Well, Labour Behind the Label
0: is a small group. We all work part-time and we are part of several major networks that work on the garment industry. One of them is the Clean Clothes Campaign and the other one is Change Your Shoes, something that we really strongly believe in and I think this is what distinguishes the work of the Clean Clothes Campaign and that's showing solidarity with groups all around the world. So we have a partner network of about 250 groups and they include trade unions, labour rights groups, but also women's rights groups and where they want us to push the big brands because consumers have a lot more power often than workers producing the clothes. And we make sure that we work with these groups and not on.
3: Amazing. And that's quite important in international work to be working with organisations who are at the grassroots as opposed to on behalf of or telling them how to do things, isn't it?
0: Exactly. Um, And I think it's especially true in the garment industry because women in these producing countries, they face so many different forms of discrimination. And one of these is that the trade unions are, in many cases, led by men. So you sometimes get specific issues that relate to women workers and health and safety in the workplace, living conditions. They're the sorts of things that some unions that are male-dominated don't work on. So it's really important that we work with the women's groups and also the women workers. In some countries, trade unions are repressed by law, so we have to work with organisations that aren't yet trade unions, but they do a a similar role uh, in the community.
2: So, the clothing industry is a feminist issue and it's because the majority of the people who make these clothes are women and children. Could you go into the issues that these women and children face?
0: it's around 80% of the workers are female and in some countries that goes up to 90% so for example in Cambodia and it's not really an accident that the workers are female it's really discrimination and some structural issues in the garment industry especially now with globalisation it's always on the lookout for cheaper production site below wages anything really to produce clothes cheaper and that means that they employ women mainly because production takes place in state where there's inbuilt cultural discrimination against women in many cases they use lower wages they are used to poorer working conditions there's some serious structural and systemic problems within the garment industry it's built around low wages short-term informal employment it takes place in many states where health and safety regulation just really isn't monitored You know, for one item of clothing, there can be several different suppliers, but those suppliers can each have two, three, five different subcontractors, and it can also include home workers. There's a very complex supply chain, and brands up until now have been very unwilling to take responsibility for all the workers.
3: Hmm. Could you elaborate on home workers, because you mentioned that they tend to be taken advantage of most. Who are home workers?
0: Home workers in particular are very vulnerable. For example, in the shoe industry, there'll be predominantly women making the leather uppers that will then get shipped off to a factory somewhere else. Or you might get women working at home producing lace. And these are women that are almost invisible. They're isolated from trade unions, have very little contact with other workers. In some cases, you see companies that their response is to say, well, we'll stop home workers. And that isn't at all what we're asking for. But what we're asking for is better regulation and more protection for these women and the ability for the women to organise. The thing with home workers is that there are benefits. They sometimes fit in the work in between uh, looking after the family, cooking, cleaning, etc. We certainly don't want to see an end to home workers, but an end to the exploitation of invisible workforce.
3: I hadn't thought about how they would be more likely to be mothers and that that would be an advantage to them and actually by stopping it entirely you'd be doing a disservice to the people on the ground who need that kind of labour that's flexible.
0: Exactly there's an academic argument people say that women's entry into the workforce has been one of the first steps towards greater economic independence but also political emancipation but I think the problem is that the garment industry is not empowering these women, but it's simply replicating forms of discrimination. It's a process almost of entrapment, so the women are trapped in very low-paid work with wages that generally are not enough to feed their family, and very little access to childcare training and opportunities for promotion. And in some countries, women are required to sign agreements saying they won't get married or they won't have children, which is why in some countries you see factories made up predominantly of 16 to 25-year-olds, because they're the cheapest and they're not likely to have babies. And once they reach a certain age, then they have to move on.
2: So these women have to sign saying that they're not going to get married and they're not going to have children?
0: Yeah, it's not in all cases. But um, we have found instances for example in China women that do get pregnant are sacked what? Uh, despite obviously you know international and national regulations
2: sorry i'm just it just seems absolutely ridiculous they have to literally physically choose whether they're going to work or they're going to have children.
0: Yeah, exactly. That is one of the ways in which wage costs are kept down. If you're employing people on short-term contracts and often denying them access to Social Security benefits and pensions, then it's far easier to get rid of workers if they do fall pregnant because you can do that and stay within the law.
3: You were talking about how you have to choose between a job or having a family but imagine if you fall pregnant and it's not by choice at all and then that is ultimately the decision made for you.
0: Obviously it's a startling example I think of the power that the factories and the whole industry have over what in some cases a whole generation of women. So some countries for example, Bangladesh, but also to an extent, Cambodia, garment production is a huge part of their economy. And for many young women, it's one of the few available jobs. In many garment producing countries, the women are migrants from rural areas. So they've traveled to the cities where they've got very little support. So if they do get pregnant, then that means traveling back to their home villages. But at the same time, at places like China, once they've had the child, because of rules on residency, a so-called hukou system, migrants aren't necessarily allowed to bring their children to the cities. So you have a whole generation of what the Chinese called left-behind children, and they stay behind in the villages with their grandparents while their parents move back to the cities to work.
5: I
2: mean, this whole thing is, it's heartbreaking. Can you describe maybe a typical working condition for these women or these children that you've come across? I think.
0: Waking up very early, maybe cooking for the family, start work at 7, working maybe a 10-hour shift, a break for supper, and then an added couple of hours of overtime that is not voluntary. Management would say, well, you either do the overtime or you leave. Sometimes people work up to 15 hours a day. In many places, they would have one day off a week. But in some places, you don't have any time off or you have a bonus. So, for example, in Burma, in Myanmar, workers would get a bonus if you have a full attendant, which means no rest day. They work generally in very hot, humid environment, very little ventilation. So there's a lot of you know, dust in the air. It's incredibly noisy. Workers will get paid according to a piece rate. So they have to produce a certain number each, each hour. At the end of the shift, if they haven't done it, they might be forced to sit there until they've done it. They might not have a written contract. They might not have any contribution made to a social security system. They might not have a pension. If they're migrants, they may or may not be legal. Often the supervisors are male, management are male. They face verbal harassment sexual harassment so it's a really tough life when you think about how a t-shirt is made or how much a pair of shoes costs when you actually buy them in the shop the cost of labor which is the cost of employing these women is minimal often about one percent of the whole price of a garment or a pair of shoes
2: i so as a hobby i like to make my own clothes i know how damned hard it is to make a piece of clothing and so to think that these women are pumping out clothing day in day out and having to meet a quota how is this
1: how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: This Any different and could you potentially call this slavery?
0: I mean, slavery, there's legal definitions, you know, in the ILO conventions, but also in the UK around modern slavery. And a lot of employment in the garment industry does meet those definitions. Migrants who have paid a lot of money to move to a city or a different country to get a job and they need to keep their job in order to pay the debt off. So that is effectively slavery bonded labor. You probably have heard of something called Rana Plaza, which was a a huge factory collapse in Bangladesh a few years ago, which killed over a thousand, mainly women, uh, garment workers. You saw blocked fire exit bars on the window, which meant that the workers couldn't escape. It may not be technically slavery, but it's such a pressure to work to earn these poor wages, to stay in that room, even when workers... Said, you know, there's cracks in the building, I want to leave. Management said, no, these people are scared. So they stayed, and then unfortunately, over a thousand died.
2: Oh my gosh. How likely is it that on a generic high street store that I shop in every day, how likely is it that the clothing that I'm buying has been made in conditions like this? It's
0: extremely likely. It sounds really negative when we say that you walk down a high street and most clothes are made in poor condition. but unfortunately it's true. There are some brands have said that they're committed to raising wages, but unfortunately the garment industry is inherently flawed. It's based upon a labour-intensive model which has to use cheap labour to make profit for the brands. One of the issues is how we as consumers consume fashion with the rise of fast fashion once a month there'll be new clothes it's not every season it's every few weeks That means that the brands will put out orders to the factories with very fast deadlines. That means that suppliers have to employ temporary staff or have to make their staff work long hours. The prices are really pushed because brands have so much power. So the suppliers have very little choice but to keep the wages
3: down. So
0: really we're asking for brands to, to look at the whole of the supply chain and not just make commitments. We're not seeing any structural change.
3: I'm thinking about who are making the clothes that I'm wearing, even right now, as a white woman who shops in high street stores because they're affordable. um, Oh, look at me trying to justify it. The clothes that I wear, made by uh, women of colour in countries where the companies take advantage of the history of power. (laughs) Who's actually benefiting from this entire system?
0: the capitalist system, <laughs> but also it's the big brands. I mean, we criticise, for example, the Bangladeshi or the Burmese government for setting really low wages, but at the same time they want investment. And it's the brands and also the government, the global north, that say, well if you want investment then you have to keep your labour costs down, otherwise we'll go somewhere even cheaper. It's certainly not the workers, it's not even the factory owners in, in producing countries. If you look at the price makeup of the pair of shoes, the brand's take the biggest
2: cut when you think about the beauty industry and the fashion industry it's generally an old white man profiting off of women's insecurities which they put in place these insecurities right and then it generally tends to be unfortunately western women because they're the ones that can afford so the western women are feeling insecure and then it ends up being the women of color in the developing worlds who are picking up the slack of that what can we do and and i mean this is like everyday people who aren't activists and aren't campaigners what can we do as everyday people
0: we don't call for boycotts you know we try to make brands not just cut and run because obviously that means that female garment workers are out of job we want brands to engage with suppliers and factories and and their workers the next time you walk into a high street shop ask the shop assistant where was this t-shirt made do you know if they got a living wage oh by the way have you got a copy of this brand's code of conduct the shop assistant will probably go oh I've got no idea but they will then tell their boss the store manager will then inform their bosses you can do that with every shop you go into and see the reaction the more people that do it the message is that consumers do care Mm -hmm. and we do want to know where our clothes were made another aspect is you know maybe not consuming so much or maybe You know, saying, well, I don't need to have a new T-shirt this week. You know, I'd rather buy this one item that is ethically produced and keep it and respect the labour that went into it, the women's work that sewed the stitches, rather than just getting another piece of throwaway stuff. You can do recycling, clothes swaps, things like that.
2: You specifically said that we don't want to boycott these organisations and these shops. And and it's something that, that I feel like I've got to wrestle with in that, okay... Is, uh, is it that ethical? But at the same time, it's the only work that they have. And then maybe you should just, instead of binge buying like throwaway T-shirts from specific brands because, you know, they're cheap to buy and appreciate and to really acknowledge the labor that's gone into it. Mm.
0: Yeah, there are ethical labels out there that would be great to buy. Right? but obviously they're often much more expensive. So it is difficult, and I wrestle with that fact. Sometimes when I go down to the high street and I need something for my daughter, a pair of cheap leggings, I will go in there. But I know I do that consciously, and I try to ask the shop assistant where it was made and who it was made by. We can change the industry, but we can't change it by not buying clothes. We need to have clothes.
2: Mm.
3: You
0: know, it's obviously even the women workers need to have clothes but i think it's making sure that it's an industry that treats workers with respect that upholds fundamental rights that pays decent wages we've all as consumers got a part to play in this and i think that is what the women workers would want us to do in factories when they lose their job because they're setting up a union they don't want us to say well we won't buy from this shop but they want us to say pay your workers well treat them with dignity
2: is it possible that this is also a bit of a class issue? Fair enough, I want to be as ethical as I can with my clothing, but it's very expensive to buy ethical fashion. Mm. What, how can we make ethical fashion accessible?
0: You're right, I think it is a class issue. If you look at, for example, how much a t-shirt, how much the price of that is made by the labour costs, it's only a small proportion. So if, let's say, workers were paid a living wage the price increase if that was passed on to the consumer would only be you know a matter of 50p or something it's a slight myth to say that you know if you want to be ethical it has to be very expensive if you're talking about raising wages up to a living wage you can do that and still produce relatively cheap clothes
3: Thank you so much, Dominique, for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to uh, learn from you and what Labour Behind the Label do. How can we support your work? How can we find out more about Labour Behind the Label? great question
0: (laughs) we've got a website it's labourbehindlabel.org we're actually launching a campaign next month at the beginning of may uh, on transparency in the supply chain what we want is for brands to publish who their suppliers are to publish more details about wages and audits and how they monitor things and also to talk about what chemicals they use uh, and how their leather is produced in the shoe industry look at our website and sign our petition and maybe you know Pass the details around you know when you get a new t-shirt and you look at the label it says made in Cambodia or somewhere but you don't know where and the brands don't say where and one of the things that we saw from the Rana Plaza tragedy was that workers had to pick through the rubble to get the labels of the brands that they were making before the brands took responsibility for the accident. We wanted to proactively get the brands to publish where they produce so that we can know as a consumer where our clothes are being made and if something goes wrong, we know where to look.
3: So, listeners, if you've uh, bought any piece of clothing over the past six months, the least you can do is sign the petition.
0: <laughs> That'd be lovely. Basically. Yes. <laughs>
3: That was Dominique, awakening us to the work that goes into the clothes on your back. Her insight reveals how fashion and garments are also an intersectional feminist issue. Let's talk to Aisha about another kind of clothing and the symbolism behind it.
5: My name is Aisha Malik. I am originally uh, from Pakistan. Um, I, I was born and raised there. Um, I, ha- I'm tr- I trained as a lawyer and I reside here in England now. And I'm interested in issues cut across various disciplines, including feminism and how it keys into my faith, which is Islam.
2: Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this month. It means a lot to us. Yeah, we found you through some of the articles that you've written. And we noticed that you were one of the women who stood on Westminster on the bridge after the Westminster attacks recently. So maybe we could start off with asking why you stood in solidarity on the bridge that day.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think it was exactly about showing solidarity in times of adversity. And I think for for me personally, it it was important for a few reasons. And one of the primary ones being that uh, I think as a Muslim, who is a visible Muslim and who uh, believes very firmly in integrating peacefully into multicultural societies, multi-faith societies and finding a positive means of peaceful cohabitation between multi-faith societies. I felt that An attack on Westminster Bridge that day was an attack on all of us, uh, an attack on our city uh, and a city that I have come to own as an immigrant uh, from Pakistan. And so I think for me personally, standing on that bridge, holding hands with a a diverse demographic that this country does represent, was was like a powerful symbol of showing that whether you can be a Muslim and come together in a multicultural setting, and also own the country you live in and be loyal to the country you live in. I was very glad to see that it received, some, uh, it received a big plethora of positive responses, which was uh, heartening to see.
3: Mm, yes, it was wonderful. You mentioned being a visible uh, Muslim woman. Yes. You you wear the hijab. Would you be able to tell us yes. about why you do so?
5: Personally, it's. Uh, it was a journey. The, wear- the wearing of the hijab is, I, I feel, very much a journey. And... It's as much as it is an external journey that you make a statement to the world, it's about self-identification. I think it is an external journey, it's an internal journey as well. And I think it begins as an internal journey of how you perceive yourself, your place in the world, how you perceive life. I think many people don't think about these questions when they look at someone who wears the hijab represents something, unfortunately, something very different today because it's become to be associated with oppression and servitude and people only imagine women being forced to wear the hijab. Whereas I think it's just a personal preference of clothing that you feel uh, depicts modesty and also depicts how you interact with your external world, the societies you live in. I think for me personally, it's also, again, a spiritual... Choice. For me, I think my faith does uh, sort of refer to the fact that you should cover yourself. Uh, However, there's a parallel uh, injunction of there being no compulsion. So, um, Islam never tells you forcefully to cover yourself, it only suggests that women guard their modesty and chastity because there's always a verse that says that there's no compulsion in the Islamic faith. Uh, But for me, it's a personal preference that represents a symbol of modesty and self-identification. So I think, yes, I think personally the hijab um, does represent so much more than just a piece of clothing. While on the face of it, I think, prima facie, it is a piece of clothing. But I think it's uh, symbolic of a, it's a symbol of modesty for for the Muslim woman. It's also a symbol of self-identification that is rooted in her, in her faith, Um, and I think that when communities look, uh, when societies that are not inherently Muslim look at that symbol, I think that symbol does make a statement.
3: Thank you so much. So you talked about the self-reflection that happens when thinking about wearing the hijab, but also what other people see when they look at you. How do you reconcile those two things? What kinds of things, because being visibly Muslim is having such bad press, especially at the moment,
5: what, what is that like? I would say that it is a frustrating journey. My background is I grew up in Pakistan, which was obviously a predominantly Muslim country. So when I first started wearing the hijab, I was obviously didn't have any issues of that nature, uh, where people who were not Muslims or belonged to no religion would look at someone and uh, put them into a box. Also, when I started wearing the hijab, the world was a different place. This is before 9-11, obviously. But today, in today's world, we're living in a post-9-11 world. We're living in a world that now is being divided, I feel, into two extreme sides of the political spectra. You have the right-wing sentiment, which is becoming increasingly rampant, you have the left wing also. So you have like a polarized world in that sense. And when you live in a society like ours, where people have those, hold those, each of those views, I feel like, yes, sometimes I personally haven't had direct hostility leveled against me. Being a visible Muslim, I do know friends and family who have. And on some level, when I'm on the tube or on the train, I do think about how others are perceiving me because you do make a statement when you're visibly Muslim. But I think for me personally, because it's an inward journey, I don't do it to harm others. I don't think it harms others. But I think for me, what has become increasingly more important, and that is why I have started contributing where I can into the national media and also writing articles, holding community events, telling people what uh, the Islamic faith is about and answering people's questions, I think that is important.
2: You recently wrote about how the European Court of Justice ruled that employers can ban Muslims from wearing headscarves in the workplace Mm -hmm. as long as they can also ban other types of religious symbols and attire. Can you explain what that means a little bit more?
5: Sure. The court has basically ruled in that employers can ban religious symbols, which include the Sikh turban, the Jewish kippah or the Muslim headscarf, amongst others. So if, if they're banning one of them, they can ban that particular symbol so long as a general ban on all religious symbols in, is in place. And they did that basically to which they thought would not be breaching the principle of religious neutrality in the workplace. And so for a layperson, it simply means that someone who chooses to wear a religious symbol at work and where a a rule is in place where religious symbols cannot be worn, is unable to do so. And I think it's become the ruling is a problem because it goes against the european convention on human rights which guarantees religious freedom and which includes the ability to wear religious symbols to manifest your faith in the workplace and the only limitation on that right is where you are a threat to public order for example and obviously the wearing of religious symbols does not come within those categories of preaching being a threat to public order and that that is why the decision has stirred some controversy.
2: Right and what I find a little uh, somewhat unsettling about this is that so when you think about business and we think about going to work women are already at a disadvantage and then when you think about that women of color are already Mm -hmm. at a disadvantage and then Muslim women are at a disadvantage Mm -hmm. when it comes to workplace what does this mean for Muslim women and women of color?
5: I think that's a very important question. And I think it's for me personally, it's a very important one. Because this is what I wrote in my article as well, that I was raised by a single mother in Pakistan, who was a school teacher, and she used to wear the headscarf. And for me, I find it very ironic that if she was a single parent today in Europe, trying to raise us, she wouldn't be able to work because of the effect of the ECJ ruling. It disenfranchises her so long as the employer's rules are in place in the particular country. And I think that for women like myself, and for women of color who choose to wear religious symbols, I think the ruling cuts across a much broader range of rights. It curtails, for me, the troubling aspect of the ruling, is that it effectively takes away your economic, social and cultural rights. Because if you're not allowed to work, and the right to work impacts uh, your economic well-being. And it also impacts how, your cultured, how you culturally identify yourself. At times, some people don't always associate religious symbols with a particular religion. I think there are a lot of symbols that are now cultural. So I think the decision curtails your wider economic, social and cultural rights as well. And I think it's important to point out that people... For women, especially, who are single mothers and they are caught in a situation where their employer is not allowing them to wear a religious symbol to work, I think they will have to make that difficult choice of being a breadwinner and also respecting their faith. So I think it puts people, puts women in a very difficult situation in that sense.
2: Right. So as if the world wasn't already hard enough. Yes. Yes. We've just made it 10 times harder.
5: We, we unfortunately have, yes. And I think it's hypocritical terrain that we find ourselves in because on the one hand, we have the continent, Europe, I mean, which is very liberal and allows bare-bone dressing. And this is, again, an argument I put forward in my article. But it somehow hasn't been able to swallow women choosing to cover themselves of their own free accord. It always symbolizes oppression and servitude in some form. Whereas I feel a fundamental argument is that the woman's freedom to be able to wear a hijab should be equally respected as her freedom not to wear a hijab. In France, there's been a debate about a new laicite. In France, this has been in the legal landscape since 2004, the headscarf issue. Could you explain a little bit more about laicite? So, iliacité is just the French word for secularism. And last year, I was at a conference in Oxford. And there was a French scholar who had come over. And she was speaking of the politics of secularism. And she, her talk was enlightening, because she basically painted the legal landscape in Europe, in France, sorry, of how the headscarf issue has evolved. And she said that while constitutionally, in the French constitution, uh, you can only sort of put a ban on religious symbols insofar as public officials are concerned. Mm. It does not affect private individuals like the CCJ ruling does. It affects private individuals choosing to wear these symbols to work. Mm. So <clears throat> what the French courts have done by extending uh, the headscarf ban, like as you know, the headscarves are now banned like teachers and other professional Women can't wear them in France. They've sort of overrided the constitution. So what the scholar was basically saying is that the liberal framework in France, which is supposed to be guaranteeing religious freedom in conjunction with guaranteeing other freedoms, which is a sign of secularism and the the French Republic, there's this new secularism coming up that they want to ban this symbol that they feel is not doesn't go hand in hand with their version of freedom and their version of secularism. So so you called it the new liacite. But I think, I mean, that's probably what the ECJ has also done, in simple words.
3: It's really interesting. And all of these laws, all of these rules, yeah. they're affecting who who feels like they're able to access the space. And, and we know through all of our conversations that visibility is really important. Do you think that yeah. these legislations and this this way of of talking about um, Muslim women mm. as the other means that mm. we're even less likely to see positive representations of, of Muslim women who may or may not wear the
5: hijab. Unfortunately, I think it will have that impact. And as a personal example, I can tell you that I was catching up with a friend last month who works in Brussels. And he was, we were discussing the ECJ ruling and the path that the continent uh, is going down. And he was quoting an example of this woman who has degrees from LSE and other places and she can get any job she really wants but in France and other places like Belgium she's limited because there are rules in place which prevent her from manifesting her faith and I think that as a, as a society we are losing out in some of that diverse conversation and also a conversation that can contribute so positively to the community because I think women, Women voices really play a positive part in informing the the larger national conversation. And if you take those voices out of the legal, the, the social and the political spectrum, you are really silencing a large majority. So then what does this mean for... When we think about
2: society and the societal impact and, and, you know, everything, the economic impact, what does this mean when people are physically excluded and left out of the conversation, which seems absolutely ludicrous, what Mm -hmm. does that mean for the impact on society if we're going to then actually leave out these people from conversations?
5: I think the impact can be manifold. I think the immediate impact would be repercussions for that individual. For example, like I already said, if the woman is a breadwinner for her family, it it impacts her adversely if she chooses to really stick to her faith and then compromise on being a breadwinner. Um, So it, it, it puts firstly, I think the individual has to make some very difficult choices at times. And also I think it can harbor feelings of isolation. A lot of people who... Uh, Wear religious symbols. Let's say if we're talking about Muslim women, a lot of those women are not necessarily people who've grown up here. They've come from abroad, and if they they may feel excluded. And I think isolation and marginalisation in the society in a, in a world that we live in today is only going to cultivate negativity. It, it will also make it difficult to. For those people who actually really want to integrate into societies like Britain, despite wanting to, the society will be preventing them from doing so. So the society is going against its own values, if you understand. And I think that is a very regressive step for a country that believes in liberty, that believes in freedom, I feel like. Britain has a long history of pluralism and tolerance and I feel fortunate and hopefully they haven't gone down that path yet. I think Europe, uh, the the sentiments and the legal landscape in Europe is unfortunately going down that path. Britain has still shown a resistance to that and I feel like that that is something that we should value quite deeply as people uh, living in Britain.
2: Well, Aisha. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this month. It's been absolutely wonderful and such a privilege to have had you, to have heard you speak about stuff like this. And it's honestly, it's been so amazing. So one final question, what is it that you're working on
5: and how can our listeners support you and follow you? So at the moment I have a few projects. I have a blog on the Huffington Post. I'd be very happy if, People look me up on Twitter and look at the stuff I put on periodically. I'm also working pro bono at the moment for a magazine. It's called the Review of Religions. It's one of the oldest magazines on comparative religion. It's been in print since 1902, and the magazine focuses on issues like we've discussed today. And I. I'm a deputy editor of their law and human rights sections. So you are interested.
1: Wonderful. No, that Thank sounds, you so much.
5: Yeah, that sounds
2: amazing. Thank you so much. And we really appreciate it. Ayesha spoke about what the hijab means to her and how law changes have shaped visible representations of the Muslim community. An important voice to platform. Thank you to each of our guests for lending us their voices as we talked about clothing,
3: covering everything from transparency in the industry to modesty and faith. From appropriation and stealing to appreciation and cultural exchange. We've asked many questions on this episode. So which are you asking yourself? Get in touch at www.kickingthecariarchy.org. Email us at kickingthecariarchy at gmail.com. Or tweet us at kickcariarchy. Facebook us at kickingthecariarchy. And we can't wait to hear from you. Remember to look out for our one-year anniversary live event too. Can you believe it's
2: nearly been a year? Nope.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row?